important chapter. They're all important, but this is, this is uh, where everything happens related to his laying his life down on our behalf. <clears throat> Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a con- consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, and saying, who, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes, own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they, came, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled 
a, a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this, is, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him. And he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming, coming and taking courage, went to, into Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus observed where he was laid. Let's pray together. Lord, we yield our hearts to you. We can't imagine what you went through seeing all of this. Your son, whom you were well pleased, who you loved. We want your purposes to be accomplished in each one of us, Lord. Through these verses, there's so many different things you can speak to us about, so many ways you can brand our hearts with the image of Christ's love so that we will never forget what he did for us and thus we can live our lives as a response to that love in worship to him. So we yield our hearts. We, we ask that you'd be our teacher this morning. Come upon us freshly, Lord. We recognize, Jesus, you walk in the midst of the seven churches. You walk in the midst of our church right now, your church. Lord, and we want it to be a blessing to you in everything that we say, everything we do, everything that we study, how we worship, everything. Lord, we want it to be pleasing to you because this is your church. We yield our hearts to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Every time it comes to the point where you're reading about the crucifixion and even the resurrection, among so many other places, but especially those places, anyone that lays down doctrine and teaches the word feels inadequate and feels like you just can't do justice to this passage no matter what you do, no matter how, you, how much you study. It's always going to be insufficient compared to the majesty of what Jesus did for us. And that's how I feel today. But I know that the Holy Spirit can take what little I say and multiply it in our hearts. But as we focus on what Jesus did for us and how he laid his life down for us, it's very important that we have hearts that are open to what he wants to say to us. Because coupled with the inability for any teacher to properly, worthily, however you want to say it, teach these things, these great, amazing themes in Scripture is his capacity to open up our hearts to things that we never considered before. And more importantly, things that we should consider that affect how we live for him. The whole Christian life is a response. It should be anyway. 
Our whole Christian pilgrimage, our whole Christian walk is centered around responding to what Jesus did for us and living a life of love to him. And so often when Christians get that backwards, most of the time because of bad teaching, they live their lives to try to get God to accept them. They live their lives to try to get God to love them more. And when they fall short, like we all do every day, because the standard remains perfection, we fall short every day. They have less and less confidence before God when God wants us to have an increasing confidence before him because we have an increasing understanding of his grace and that he's told us, commanded us, to come boldly into the, before the throne of grace because he has paid for our sins. We live in the present. We think about our shortcomings, our sin. We think about those things all the time because we're living in the present. But God's outside of time. He's transcendent. And when he, before the foundation of the world, he knew all the sins that we would commit. At the cross, he knew all the sins that we were going to commit. He knew, he knows and he paid for the sins we haven't committed yet this afternoon or today. Or if you fall asleep this morning, just kidding. He knows the sins we're going to commit tomorrow, next week, next month. When we fall short and fail, he is not surprised. He doesn't want it. He doesn't desire it. It's not his will, but he knows about it. But yet he still decided to pay for it on the cross, paid in full, as we'll see today. It's not surprising to him. He wants us to increasingly not live in a workspace relationship with him. I want you to, if you have kids, picture yourself with children that every time they did poorly or made a mistake or did something willful or whatever, they knew your love would be removed and they had to earn that love back. And all this time you loved them, you cared for them, you, you loved them unconditionally. All of that, that time, that was the case, but you saw them struggle. You saw them struggle with that love that you have for them. It would break your heart. And we have an infinitely inferior love towards our kids than what God has for us. And he wants us to get past that. And maybe that's for somebody here specifically. You need to get past that. And when I say that, I mean it doesn't mean if you don't or don't at the pace that God would want, somehow God's going to love you any less because that's the whole point of what I'm saying. It never, it never ceases. So he wants us to be able to have confidence before him. It's the bedrock upon which our Christian uh, growth is built. And we can't struggle with salvation. We can't struggle with having uh, that, that confidence before him. He has, he's a great high priest. We looked at that last week. He empathizes with our struggles. Every struggle that we go through, apart from things that are unique to us having a sinful nature and him being sinless, he, does, he, he experientially understands. So for us, he wants us to have that confidence. So seeing the cross afresh here this morning and seeing what he did for us, please understand that he did that willingly. He did it for us and by rejecting that grace that I just talked about and accepting how he loves us despite our performance is actually not believing that it was truly finished. Because you're thinking in your mind, I have to continue to be a good Christian for him to love me and accept me and have confidence that he wants to have a relationship with me on a daily basis or go to heaven or whatever. You are actually living a life as if he never said it's finished. <clears throat> he doesn't want that. 
So as we begin here in verse 1, we've seen all the way through this book, this repeating word. Now some of you are in inductive Bible study. Shameless plug again, even though it's already started. I'm not against shameless plugs. I'm great with them. I'll do all kinds of shameless plugs. You never know. I might be talking about Weight Watchers or I may, <laughs> you know, like experientially. Thank you, sir. Won't help, but thank you. Um, but the, the, the point is, is that there's a repeating word immediately. We've seen it all through the book of Mark because it's an abbreviated, it's abbreviated gospel and he gets to the point. It's a book of action. So immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and they bound Jesus, led him away and delivered him to Pilate. What's interesting is that all this planning, when you go through a consultation of elders, people that are supposed to have wisdom, scribes who are professional people that, that recorded the law down and made copies of the Bible, and the whole council, which is the Sanhedrin, of which most likely the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus at this point was a part, they sought all this wise counsel. In, the, in Proverbs it tells us, in the, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. All of that, and it says, and they bound Jesus. That's the completely inappropriate response to all that counsel and consultation. It's all wicked plans. These, again, Jesus has already spoken a parable against these men, talking about the vineyard, and the vineyard was Israel, and, and, and God expects fruit from that. And they were the ones that were the vine dressers, and they kept rejecting the prophets. They kept rejecting, because the, those prophets were, the, were the, in the parable were the, the people coming the, the, the um, representatives of the, the, the landowner, the vineyard landowner, who is supposed to get a return from his investment, they kept being greedy and they kept killing these messengers who in reality were the prophets in terms of how it fit into the truth of the story. And then he said, oh, I'll send my son. And that was prophetic. And, and these people were supposed to, he was, Jesus was focusing on how guilty they were they were supposed to be leading the nation of Israel towards God, towards the truth, towards the Messiah. They were doing the opposite. And here they are. It culminates with them kind of binding him, or not kind of, binding him, led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, Pilate's an interesting person. Pilate, the critic said that has said up for years and years, up until 1961, they were flapping their gums and saying, oh, you Christians are so naive because there's no, there's no uh, evidence that Pilate ever existed in Judea. It never, never says anywhere that, um, I mean, existed as the governor of Judea. And so you guys are making that up, and they're just mocking all of that. And then in 1961, they discovered a stone, and I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. And it was when is, uh, Egypt was building a dam and because of that dam, it slowed down the, the flow of the silt from the Nile River that washed up on the Mediterranean. And so it created all these sand dunes um, before, and so now there was less sand, and what it exposed was a horseshoe-shaped uh, um, image as, a, as an Israeli helicopter pilot was flying over, and it turned out to be this huge amphitheater in Caesarea that all these things that happened in the book of Acts occurred, like Festus and Felix and Paul going before them and all of that in Caesarea there. And so they discovered that, they excavated it, and they ended up finding this tablet, and it's called the Pilate Stone. And it 
basically um, lays out the proof that Pilate was the, the governor of Judea. We can show it now. And right there on there, it says, to the, and this is in, is in um, uh, Latin, to the divine Augusti, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, perfect, prefect rather, that means governor, of Judea has dedicated this. So Pontius Pilate dedicated this stone. Right now it's in, uh, in a museum in Israel. If you go to Israel, you can see it. But they made a copy, and show the next picture, they made a copy at the site there at Caesarea, just standing there so that everybody can see that there's... <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those times where, again, the Bible proves the skeptics wrong. Because it, it, this is the stone that Pilate made as a dedication to Tiberius there, and it was left there, and they found it. It's beautiful. Now, a little bit about uh, Pilate, because he's going to be really involved in this whole scene that we're going to look at. Pilate was very cruel. He's a very cruel man. History records Josephus, the Jewish historian. Tacticus records uh, the Roman historian. Different things about Pilate. And Pilate had an issue with Tiberius Caesar at the time. They had issues. And because you were expected to build a rule over a people, because it was very important for Rome to have the people um, that they ruled over be subjected and in peace. They don't want any uprisings. They don't want any of that. And there was three things that Pilate did um, that caused uh, riots and uprisings uh, related to the Jews. One of the, one of the first things was when he first arrived, he went to the temple with Roman soldiers, and they put up flags on the temple that had Roman false gods on it. And so there was a huge uproar over that. Then secondly, he took money out of the temple treasury to pay for an aqueduct. Not exactly a way to get on the good side of the Jews. Um, and then he put up these shields with images of, of Caesar and stuff around. And that, that caused a, a third riot. So there was this tension uh, between Pilate and, and Tiberius there. But he was a harsh, harsh ruler. He feared the people because he'd already had three strikes against him and he wasn't out. So anymore, he was going to be taken out of there. Verse 2. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And this will be a pattern, as we'll see. He answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things that testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now, we're told in Isaiah 53... Like a sheep is silent before his shearers, so he did not open up his mouth. He didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to try to get himself out of that. That wasn't his plan. He could have called down legions of angels if he wanted to. His kingdom wasn't of this world. And actually in John, and we'll get there eventually, where he talks about this whole exchange goes back and forth about what is truth. And Jesus said, you know, you know my, if my disciples, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would have been fighting. And even though Peter did kind of get it going a little bit, uh, we saw. But in general, all of them weren't fighting, it was, demonstrating that it wasn't of this world. Uh, that's what the message was. But, uh, you know, that we see that here Jesus is silent. He's not, he's not defending himself. He's keeping quiet in the sense of trying to get out of what was going to happen in his 
you know, all of the, the, the chain of events that's going to start happening. He doesn't try to get out of it. He does say things at certain times related to Pilate because he's confronting Pilate with the reality of what he's doing. But in terms of defending himself, he, he is not, um, he's not doing that in this passage. Verse 6, Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named, and that was another tactic to keep the peace, okay, so that they would remain where they wouldn't be up, there wouldn't be uprisings and so forth. Um, so it says, verse 7, And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So he, he, he wants to be able to get out of this. He sees that's my opportunity, Pilate does. That's my opportunity. I can get out of this. They can release him. And, and the people, he, thought, he probably thought, surely the people are not going to be in agreement with these leaders. And they're, and they're going to say something different. They're going to they're want Jesus released because these other men were murderers. Now, they were likely zealots who were, took matters into their own hands against the Roman Empire and probably killed some Roman soldiers and all of that. But still, the better choice, even though they probably weren't a likely threat to the people in general, that it would be wiser to, to let Jesus go in terms of safety for the, the people and, and, and around there. So, but, so he thought for sure that was going to happen, but it, <laughs> to his surprise, that didn't happen. But notice we're told at the end of verse 10 that, the chief, that, that Pilate knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. See, he had the influence. He had the influence. And they had a racket going on, especially the, the, uh, the Sadducees, because they were getting money from ripping people off in the temple and all of that. It was, they were getting wealthy because of it. And so um, you know, they didn't want to give that up and all of that, but they envied that power, that, we have, that envied that, that um, desire for people to want to follow them and him and not them. We have to be careful of envy. We have to be careful of not being satisfied with what God has for us and looking at other people and wanting what they have. We have to be very careful of that. But their true motive is revealed. We're not told this any other place. They don't say, hey, we want to do all this because of envy. They didn't say that to, to um, Judas. You know, they don't reveal all of that. But we we're told here by the Holy Spirit that Pilate perceived that. And so we know that that's the case. He perceived that it was because of envy. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. So here, the chief priests, they stirred up the crowd. They, they didn't want any chance of, of Jesus being released. They, want, they, want, they don't care what Barabbas has done. They don't care about justice. They don't care about the threat, potential threat that he could be to the society and to them. They don't care about any of that. It's the greater th- threat to have Jesus be released because he had that significance and that power and, and they were envious as we saw at the end of verse 10. So they, they want this Barabbas to be released to them. Barabbas' name is interesting. You remember that Peter's name was Simon Bar-Jonah. That was his original name. Bar means the son, and then Jonah is the name. So he's Simon, the son of Jonah. And so Bar is the son, so he's the son of Abba, son of the father. And some people believe that because an S was added that 
you know, that it even makes it more pronounced or whatever. But, he, you know, this was, this was a man that was wicked. We know that if you're unregenerated, your, your, your real father, Jesus reveals, is the devil. <laughs> you know, we're the fa- our father, the devil, before we come to know our true heavenly father through Jesus Christ. And so here you have the son of God and the son of a father, a human father. And, and this guy is... Um, released instead. Verse 12, Pilate answered and said to them, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. He's giving them every possible chance to say, to change their mind, to see the insanity of what they're saying. Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? He's trying to reason with them. But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. You ever, when you're debating somebody, and sometimes this tactic is used where, um, you know, you're trying to say something, and the other person's trying to say something, and then someone tries to make a point, and then the other person tries to interrupt them, but they just get louder. They just get louder and louder and louder and louder. That's a tactic related to um, arguing and debate and, you know, uh, stating your case or whatever, and they just want to drown out Pilate's voice with crucify him. Just think about that. It, we focus so much on the religious leaders. The whole crowd that was there was saying, crucify him, crucify him. What happened in their minds? They knew that Jesus was who he was. They saw him heal. They saw him cast out demons. Some of them saw him raise people from the dead. They heard his teachings. He was n- never sinned. At some point he said, which of you convicts me of sin? No one could say anything. Then and now. Why in the world would they say this? It just shows the wickedness of our hearts. The wickedness of our hearts. We would probably be there saying crucify him too. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that because we're on the other side of eternity in the sense of our hearts and being regenerated and all those things to to, to think that we could say that. But the whole crowd says that. At one point, we're not mentioned, we're not told in this gospel, but they say, let this be on our heads and our children's heads. So they're saying, we, we don't mind taking the responsibility, and we're willing to even have this be our children and our, our lineages take the responsibility and the guilt for this. It just shows how wicked man's heart is. Don't ever let anyone tell you when you're sharing your faith, oh, if I just had Jesus before me, and if I could just see him do miracles, if I could just hear his teaching, if I could all of that, I would accept him. No, you wouldn't. Because your heart, just like all of ours, is desperately wicked. Who could know it? And so we have to recognize that, that our hearts are evil. And Jesus knew our hearts, but he still decided to pay for our sin and to, to die for us. So they cried out all the more, crucify him. And it, it, we see in other passages where he's going to take a bowl and wash his hands as if that does something, as, that, as if that gets him out of uh, responsibility. And, and, you know, he went against his conscience. He went against what he knew was right because he was afraid of the people. He was afraid of how they might react, which would cause a chain reaction, which, which back in Rome, they would hear about this Pontius Pilate can't keep these people together. He can't rule them well. And so we're going to have to, you know, uh, reassign him at best or murder him at worst to make him an example. So when you go against your conscience, you can never wash your hands. Pilate couldn't. And we can't today. We can't go against our conscience. We know what's right. Sometimes people ask, should I do this or should I do that? And sometimes you say to them, well, if you have to ask, you probably already know the answer. 
right? And so they, you can't go against your conscience. You can't, some of you here might be living in contradictory to God's word, and you know you're living in contradiction to God's word. That's willful disobedience. You're not going to be able to wash your hands of that. You're going to be held accountable for your decisions. We all are. And God doesn't, God doesn't miss any of it. He sees all of it. There would be a dispute eventually. A few couple years after this, wasn't far after this, that Pilate would have another dispute with Tiberius, maybe as a result of this and not being able to control you know, the, the, the church exploding and you know, all of that. Even though they were peaceful, the teaching would always be to be subject to governing authorities and to bless and to, to live peaceable and quiet lives and all the things that God says. The Holy Spirit would be inspiring those apostles to say those things. There were no threat to any gov- we're no threat to any government. All we want is to love people. That's what God tells us to do. And so the, here he is um, getting um, in trouble with Tiberius again, and eventually Pilate gets banished to Vienna and dies there. And some reports are that he went insane thinking about the cross and all of that, but we don't know if that's true ultimately. But he ended up um, in, in seclusion like that because he just couldn't handle it anymore. So it's another lesson in a sense. It's a, it's a very broad one, though, but... When you go against what you know that you should do um, and, you th- and you think that disobeying God is going to end up better than obeying God, then the peace that you want becomes elusive. And the, and the desires that you want, you lose. The thing that you compromise to hold on to, like Pilate was compromising to hold on to power, the very thing that he thought he needed to do to get, keep that power was, was against his conscience. Was, and the very thing that he compromised to hold on to, he, we lost. And that's how it is for us. We can compromise God's word. We can think that we know a better way to live. We can disobey his word. And the thing that we're willing to disobey for, the thing that is so precious that we'll end up losing that thing. It won't be the thing that, it won't end up being the situation that we think. Because God loves us too much to not let us reap the consequences of our decisions. And he's going to discipline us like any loving father does. So that's important for us to see as well. Verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he scourged him to be crucified. Now in this gospel, he passes over it pretty quick. I mean, they don't get into great detail in any of the other gospels, but this was a big deal. And they would, if you're newer to the Bible, you may not know this, but they would take these ropes and they would intertwine pottery and glass and teeth of animals and they would just make the, that cord so jagged with all these things. And they, they were called the cat of nine tails and they would have this big, huge, heavy whip. And they would also have a scribe next to uh, the person that was being whipped and they would try to get a confession and of course, when you're talking about having your bare back exposed and the, you're getting whipped and that's just shredding your back, taking out big chunks of your back, some of them all the way exposed their, their bowels, I mean, their, their uh, intestines, I mean, I mean just their, their organs, that's what I'm trying to say, their organs, and they would, many of them wouldn't, wouldn't survive if they didn't confess something, so they just confess. And the scribe would be there to confess all their accomplices, their co-conspirators, and all of that. Now, think of Jesus. And the max that they would do would be 40. That's the max that they would do. And oftentimes, if they didn't confess, 
they would keep going, keep going, and keep going. If they would, they'd, sometimes they would count 39 just to be safe so they wouldn't go over 40. And, and the person would confess right away. I know I'd be confessing like you wouldn't believe. Right, one, one time getting hit with that thing, just looking at it. Uh-uh. What do you want to know? <laughs> it's like, I'll tell you anything you want. I'll confess his deal. I'll confess that person's thing. I'm giving up all of your loose lips sink ships, and I'm here to sink them all right now. You know, just like, what do you want to know? You know, but so, so think about the Lord Jesus. He was innocent. He had never sinned. There was nothing he can confess that he did. He couldn't possibly confess the sin of every sin that ever would be committed. So, there, so he was silent. Even with that, there was nothing. He took the entire thing, the entire scourging. Never gave up anybody because he never conspired with anyone to do anything wrong. So he remained quiet. And I just can imagine the soldiers going back to Pilate going, not a peep from that guy. He took all... 39 or maybe they went over just being upset because it was a it was kind of a thing where it it it, you looked poorly if you couldn't get that to happen because it would show that how you how you weren't really good at what you were doing you couldn't get a confession that was like a pride thing so they would try even harder who knows what he went through and we're told in Isaiah that by his stripes we are healed by his stripes we are healed Healing is not guaranteed. Physical healing is not guaranteed in this life. But it was provided for. It was provided for. And ultimately, because God knows what's best for each one of us, ultimately, we will have a new body. And we won't be sick ever again. And we won't have to suffer physically and all those things. We will get a new body. By his stripes, we are healed. So we remain quiet. So these soldiers likely went back. You would not believe what this guy did. He, he, he didn't say anything all, the whole entire time. And then we're told in the book of John, at, soon after that, when after Jesus was, went through a lot of the stuff we're about to read in a moment, he presents him in Latin. He says, Ecce homo, and behold the man. And I don't know what was going on in Pilate's heart at that time. I, know, I don't believe there was faith going on in, in Jesus, but it was something for him to see this person go through that type of suffering and remain silent. Remain, because remember, people are normally begging. They're begging for mercy. They're begging for all those things. Jesus didn't do any of that. And he tells Pilate in the book of John that you wouldn't have this power. Because he says to him, don't you know I have the power to take your life? And he says, you wouldn't have this power unless it was given to you from above. No one ever talked to Pilate like this. No one ever had the, the, the peace and the, 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 the fortitude to be able to stand there and not beg for mercy and cry and do, make deals and bargain or whatever. He's right there and, and, and he's looking at the Lord Jesus right in his eyes, piercing his soul. And his wife had already warned him, don't, don't, I mean, do it, this man. She had dreams and all of that. He went against all of that. See, God is gracious. He gives us plenty of time to repent and do the right thing. Plenty of time. But there comes a point where we have to make a decision. We're either going to do what's right or we're going to do what's wrong. And the repercussions of what's doing, doing what's wrong come to our direction. And then it gets worse, verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. 
And this, was, this hallway was in the Antonio Fortress, which was a Roman fortress right next to the Temple Mount. Because of all the uprisings and all of that, they wanted a whole garrison there, a whole military uh, unit near there at any moment to be on the Temple Mount just like that. And today you can go and there's still the floor of the Praetorium, this big hall that they had, big massive stones made uh, or put in the floor, and it's still there today. And they called together the whole garrison, verse 17, and they clothed him with purple. Now, purple was expensive. You had to kill bugs to make purple. <laughs> uh, and it was expensive. So they just, they put, they clothed him with purple, mocking him as if he was a king. And they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Just think of that. Think of him having to hear that, mocking him. He was doing all of this willingly, doing all of it because he loved mankind. No one, no one um, took his life. He offered it down. This wasn't his ministry careening out of control. He lost control of it. He was in complete control. The timing was right. Everything was appropriate. Everything was going to be exactly how God wanted it to happen. And so they clothed him in this purple. They twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. And verse 19 says, Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Now in the original language, those verbs there, struck, spat, and bowing, those are all in a tense that communicates continuous action. So you could translate it this way. Then they kept striking him on the head with the reed, and they kept spitting on him, and they kept bowing the knee and worshipped him over and over again, smacking his head super hard with a reed. That would hurt anyway, but to have that crown of thorns and have it be pushing down into his head harder and harder and harder, punching him in the face, spitting on him, and then we know from another place, putting a bag over his head, who, who hit you? Prophesy, who hit you? horrible. There's a game that was played in the Praetorium called Kill the King. And many, they think that it happened after this point. And they, it, they etched this game in the floor where it's actually where they would be able to keep track of what they were doing and all of that. You could still look at it today. It's still etched in the stone there. The games that they would play and they would do things against people that claimed to be important and all of that, and then the winner got to kill them. But, but Jesus was a very political person. Very, there was a lot of, I mean, what I mean by that is there are political implications to all of this, and they wouldn't do that, but you can still see it there today. And when, verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So this man, Simon, a Cyrenian. The church knew this man. Notice it says the father of Alexander and Rufus. So they knew, the church, early church knew, you can read about it in Acts, or actually it's in Romans, I believe it's chapter 16, mentions these people. 
But they knew this man. This man received Christ afterwards. And um, he had these sons that were very prominent in the early church. That's why Mark says, you know this guy. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And and here he was, this man. he, He was coming from North Africa there. Probably a lifelong dream to come to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. He traveled all that distance. And he probably got up early to celebrate the Passover. And then the Romans uh, basically enacted the Hungarian rite where they could command you, put a sword on your, on your shoulder and command you to walk and carry something a mile. And that's where the whole teaching comes from when Jesus says, if they have you go one mile, then go two or whatever. To go the extra mile, that's where that started from. So that's what they do with this guy. But now it's related to this cross because um, Jesus couldn't lift it anymore. We don't know if it was the whole cross or the cross beam. In history, it records that, that those prisoners, the ones that were going on their way to be crucified, they, they did a combination. Sometimes they carried their whole cross. Sometimes it's just um, the cross beam. But one thing they did do is that they would tie a rope to the leg of the person carrying the cross because they were cruel. Every once in a while, they would pull the pull the rope, and so the weight of that cross beam or the whole cross, whatever they were carrying, would, would come down crashing on their head, and they'd hit their face and slap down. It was, and they, they did it to, to humiliate them, and they did it. All this was to show, because they had them march through the streets, and they had that sign above that cross for everybody, whatever their crime was. That was common. This wasn't unique to Jesus that they put that, that, that sign above him. They, they, and they wanted everybody to know this is what they did and this is what they got for doing so you shouldn't do it either. So the whole point was to make it so miserable for them that it would put, produce fear in people watching and they wouldn't dare do anything similar. So uh, they, they did that. And what's interesting is that here Jesus was the high, is our high priest. And, and in the history of Israel, the, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Nobody else could go. He could only go once a year and that after his sins were atoned for. And they also tied a rope to his leg, not to pull him and make it harder for him and all of that, but in case he died, they could get him out. So it's interesting that Jesus is our high priest, and, but yet they're doing it in a totally different way to hurt him. And, and, um, but Jesus was our and is our great high priest. Can you imagine Simon of Cyrene, after this, someone has said, you know, you know that he kept those clothes that were covered in blood, you know, and, and the, this is the blood of Christ and, and had it, and it was a special thing to him. And think about the next Passover, knowing what had happened a year earlier and all of that. And it just speaks to the fact that when God has us do something or we're, we've experienced something from God, and all of that. It, we're never the same after that. We're never, ever the same. No pastor would ever be the same for this man. You know his sons were, at least his sons. I mean, we can't know 100% that he, I mean, it's really hard to imagine him not becoming a Christian. But at least his sons were because they, the church knew his sons and all of that. And so beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, there's these things that, again, we experience with God and we're never the same after in certain ways. It was said that history records Peter, when he would hear the rooster crow, would hit, would hit his knees. 
as a reminder to what, his, what he did in terms of denying the Lord and not wanting to ever do that again. And it also records people mocking him when the rooster did come around. They'd be going, kur, 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 around Peter. Can you imagine, I mean, how cruel that would be to remind him? But it would, I know, just knowing how God works in our hearts, that that could be a healthy thing that he didn't mind at all. A great reminder. I need that reminder to never deny the Lord, to remember that in my own strength, I can't stay faithful to anybody, but by God's grace, I can be faithful and not deny him. And on the day of Pentecost, he stood up and 3,000 people were saved. There was being super bold. And when we get to Acts and we read through what he said, you're just thinking that they're going to take him and stone him. How, how, how bold he was. There was no being afraid of a servant girl while he's warming his hands by the fire anymore. He, so he'd be very open to any exhortation or reminder to stay close to God and not have any self-dependence. Verse 22. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Now today when you go there, there's a bus stop right there. Unfortunately, there's a bus stop there. But it's, you can see the... You can see the, uh, a skull's image, a face there. And we don't know if that was there all the way back to that time. It could have been. But that's what most people believe. that there, If that wasn't the one, there was one that that was copied after. And, and that was right near the area where um, the empty tomb was and, and all of that. So um, sometimes people refer to Calvary. Um, and that's talking about Mount Calvary. It's not talking about the place of the skull. It's talking about the mountain there, Mount Moriah. It's also called Mount Calvary. That's why we're Calvary Chapel. The word Calvary means cranium. I don't know why. So we're part of Cranium Chapel. You, you didn't know that. Uh, so maybe you feel smarter now. I don't know. Uh, but that's what they named that, that mountain. Verse 23. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And I want us to think about this because we're about to close. We're only covering half of this today. I want us to think about why he did not drink. It was a painkiller. It numbed the body. He could have taken it, but he chose not to take it. He chose not to be numbed to the fact of what he was suffering. He wanted to experience all of it because the wrath that we deserve required it. And so he didn't, he didn't drink it. And just, just think of the love of God, the love of God that would do that, that would even not numb himself to, so he could feel every bit of everything that had happened to him up to that point. It's absolutely amazing that he would go through that for us. There's no way that we could have ever thought up this whole scene. No human would ever think that God would be that loving that he would do this willingly. We might think up the, uh, an idea that God might do it reluctantly or, <laughs> or do it kind of like, well, I'm forced to and, you know, and obligated or whatever, but not willingly, not as a result of love. We would never think that up. We would never think up that salvation could be a gift. We could never think up that God could both be just and the justifier all at the same time. How is God going to not wink at sin but yet, save mankind, they come together at the cross. Because justice is meted out. Justice is completely meted out. We're going to get into that next week with the darkness and all of that. And Oh, there's so much there. But he didn't, didn't wink at sin. 
He's, justice was paid, but at the same time, he could be the justifier. He could be the one that acquits us and makes a way to save us so that he doesn't compromise either, one, either part of his character. And he can't compromise his character anyway because he can't change. But he proved that he is the same, and he found a way that we could be saved, uh, and he remained just all at the same time. This makes us want to worship. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for your great grace. We ask, Lord, that you would work these verses in our hearts. We ask, Father, that you would continue to help us to worship you and just be amazed at your love that you showed by that cross. Amazing to us. Amazing to us. And right now, as we're praying, as we continue in an attitude of prayer, I just want to see if there's anyone here that you may have never surrendered your life to Christ. You may believe in God. You may have gone to church. You may have gone through the motions. But you know your life is not right with God. And you know that you need to surrender your life, whether rededicating or for the first time accepting Jesus. Maybe you accepted Jesus when you were young, but you haven't done that now that you're older. I have no idea. But if you're here today, what I want to do is I want, I want you to identify yourself by raising your hand in a moment. I'm going to pray with you and lead you in a prayer of surrender. And then we're going to pray for you. So I just want to give someone an opportunity if you're here and you want to receive Christ for the first time or you want to dedicate your life. You know your life isn't right. You're living contrary to God's word. You haven't been doing the things you know you should be doing. You haven't been putting God first in your life. And you know it. And God's given you grace right now to make those changes. And maybe you haven't accepted the consequences of living a life in disobedience to him to the extent that you're going to. And God's brought you here. I don't know why you're here, how you came. Well, you're here today and you know that that is something that you need to do. You know you need to surrender. You know you need to put him first. Jesus said that, that we need to seek first the, the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the things after that, all the things we think we need to chase after to, and, and compromise our relationship with him in order to achieve, he said, I will add all those things to you, but you need to seek me first. So if you're here today, and there may not be anybody here, but I just want to check. If there's anybody here, you need to receive Christ for the first time, or you need to freshly give your life to him and surrender and rededicate your life, will you raise your hand right now and I'll lead you in a prayer. Anybody here? can't scratch now because I might say that I see that hand. Just kidding. Anybody here? You need to surrender your life to him. You know you're not right and you need to surrender. Just a few more minutes. God doesn't beg. I'm not going to beg. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make things right with him right now. Anybody here? Just raise your hand. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for just how great you've been. Thank you for this amazing, majestic passage. Lord, use these verses. Have them just continue to tumble around in our hearts, Lord, and speak to us and draw us close to you because of how good you've been. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. We want to live lives worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We want to live lives that's worthy of this sacrifice. We know we can't fully live up to that, but we want to increasingly grow in our holiness and our desire to please you by our lives being how you want them to be. So we thank you for this passage in Jesus' name.